Wooker Dooker, knock knock knocker. I will make that the cold open. Welcome back, everybody, to the mess that we call genuine genius. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to get back into our classic groove of history, followed by a discussion. Uh, the discussion will have to wait, I believe, because the history is going to be long. Um, or maybe it won't. Like, when I say it's going to be short, it turns out to be a 40-minute episode, so I don't know. Um, but I just jinxed myself regardless. As I, as I tell David, I am the embodiment of Murphy's Law, so whatever I say, just... If it's from me, just, just don't. Just don't, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about Tefillin in the world of pre-Revelation. 1312 before Common Era is when Revelation is believed to have occurred. In the That is the Jewish view. And again, the secular sources all confirmed that if it was, that if it did occur, according to them, it was around this time as well. So, you know, yay. Uh, okay, so let's talk about the broader world first and then the Israelite world. In the broader world, do we see tefillin? No, but because historians have this nagging persistence to equate tefillin with amulets, I decided to see and take you on a journey through amuletic, uh, uh, scripture or amuletic practices. History of apotropaic uh, uh, practices. There you go. Uh, uh, apotropaic means an amulet that is protecting from harm and or has healing powers, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Interestingly enough, there is a Jewish thing that we wear today that dates back to the world before Revelation. I don't say we wear it today. That some Jews wear and live by today. Um, mainly it's fast. <laughs> uh, is that like edible? Like, should I edit that out? Like, that's not really offensive. Oh, there's nobody in Spurs going to hear this. It's fair. If they do, they'll be like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're fine. So, uh, it's a little bit more of the, like the more artsy types of places. Exactly. Like the more, the more, What's uh, the word? I don't, I don't know. You know that type thing. You know exactly what I'm talking about though. I know what you're talking about. I just don't have a word for it. Like, like, the, like, like people who read their horoscopes. <laughs> Okay, fine. Uh, fine, fine. Uh, the, the more... What is it? Um, spiritually inclined? I was going to say spiritually inclined, but, <laughs> but it's, like, it's not spiritually it's too, inclined. Yeah, it's too, good of a, too, it's too much of a compliment. Right, exactly. So, fine. There's this, there's this thing that some Jews, uh, as a favor to David, I'll say, David, I'll say some Jews, because it's true. Some people. <laughs> some people also wear today. It's called the Hamsa. Now, to all of you who are like very, like very confused by what I just said, um, mainly because of the ch sound, which is not really pronounced by anybody other than Jews, <laughs> and the, and the fact that one on earth is a hamsa, it's this, it's this like blue hand with an eye in the middle. It's like it's like this little amulet, like a, it's like a blue hand and an eye, an eye, not like a letter eye, like an actual. Human you can Google eye images too. Yeah, you can also Google images. Uh, images. It's called the hand of Miriam. Um, Yes, that is Miriam, like the sister of Moshe. How was it around before the, the, before the revelation? Because it wasn't called the hand of Miriam before revelation. It was called something else. But this hand with an eye was, was around before revelation. Um, it was around in Mesopotamia, actually, and in Egypt. So obviously Egypt got it from Mesopotamia because they came after. But um, okay, it's like this. It is believed that the Israelites associated with the Hamsa, with, Hash, with God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, the Hamsa was known to be worn before then in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia for women to help with childbirth. 
because you want the good steady hand to get your child out of your womb. You know what I mean? Like you don't, okay. Um, it's washed in the womb as it's guided into the world. It was also known to be worn to heal snake bites. Um, I'm assuming it's because the hand is like the most physical thing that, you know, kind of, it's like Philo says, it's the seat of human action. Um, and so like, you know, the, the, you want something watching your hand. Let's put it that way. Uh, this is in the broader world. There is speculation that this idea of amulets in Egypt was taken from the ancient Mesopotamians. Like, you know, that's the places they got it from. Okay, so now let's go on to the Israelite world. Okay, so the question is, the main question is in regards to tefillin, is what were, okay, so was there any tefillin before Revelation? Now, you might ask, why would there be? Tefillin was only given during the Torah times, but we know that the sages sometimes maintain that the forefathers kept all of the mitzvahs of the Torah, all the commandments of the Torah, or they kept certain traditions, you know, that were given. That is a, a whole other podcast. That's a whole other podcast. You're right, but I'm just, I'm just saying this for the sake of uh, 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 revealing information. Like, you know, it's a, I think it's like a probable question somebody may have. So I'll give you two, I'll give you two things that I learned, found out about this. One is a credible source to the Jewish people, like, you know, the Talmud. And the other is also a credible source, but it's also not a source. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of hearsay. Um, because I couldn't find where, where this was. But, okay, let's talk about the, let's talk about what the Talmud says the Israelite world did before, before Revelation in terms of tefillin. The Talmud says this, Rava taught, as reward for that which our patriarch Abraham said to the king of Sodom, when he said that I will not take a thread nor a shoe strap nor anything that is yours. If you remember, this was a uh, this was a battle between Abraham and like five kings or four kings. After the five kings news, he offered him lots of treasure mm-hmm. as a reward. Yeah, exactly. And Abraham said, "I'm not going to take a thread or a shoe strap or anything that's yours." And so Rava said, because he the sage Rava said this was around the second century that because he distanced himself from anything that wasn't rightfully his, his children merited two practices that we have in the Torah. The thread of sky blue wool worn on the ritual fringes, meaning the tzitzit, and the straps of the phylacteries. So, the, the tefillin. And so that that points quite clearly that, it, it seems to point quite clearly that tefillin was not a practice until Revelation at least. So, I think it's very safe to rule out the possibility of tefillin before um, before uh, Revelation. And I, I haven't, and I tried to look and please email me if I'm wrong. I could not find any Midrashim homolytical stories that speak of the forefathers wearing tefillin. I could not find that anywhere. And, and I looked like, but I, again, like I'm not, I don't have the resources to go through everything. And if you find something, please, I, I, will, I will correct myself in the next podcast. I, I would be happy to. Okay. Now the next source about the Israeli world pre-revelation. I had a conversation with a, with a cousin of mine who is, uh, who is part of the Chabad community. Um, Chabad is a section of Judaism, which, okay, which, have their own, which have their own ideas. Like every section of Judaism has their own ideas, and Chabad is one of them. Um, he says that Chabad, th- there is a lecture on, Chab- on Chabad, uh, you know, uh, that Chabad gives that says that during the times of the patriarchs, they didn't need tefillin because tefillin is, tefillin is something that's imbued with sanctity now, and it's always considered sanctified. But the forefathers were so holy that anything they picked up was considered sanctified. So they didn't need this, like, they didn't need this uh, to fill in to, make, to connect to God. I, like, I don't know. I know how to explain that. Okay, fine. So go ahead. I think the idea is that 
uh, for really for all mitzvahs, and this is, I think, the, the, the best explanation, in my opinion, for what it means that the, the forefathers learned Torah and kept mitzvahs, right? Noah limit Torah. What does that mean? That people who didn't have access to Torah because, you know, there's just this little problem of, you know, we presume time to be linear. So the Torah is given at a certain point. Before then, how could anybody have anything to do with it? So, and this is, I think this is an idea that's very easy to understand, is that if we view mitzvahs simply as a way of elevating different aspects of the physical world and connecting them to the creator, the particular details about how it's done are, are only, are, are, are not, it's not mutually exclusive. Meaning the, it's more about what is behind the act than the act itself. That being the case, you don't need actual tefillin. I mean, in theory, you don't need actual tefillin to do the mitzvah of tefillin. If you are, if you're at the point where you can connect to those ideals on that level. So I, I agree with you on that. I guess the thing that confused me is because he did tell me he wasn't sure if this is correct, this part. But he told me like they would pick up a stick and like it would have the same. I think that means, I think that the meaning is that, and the similar in what, where Yaakov went back for the small jars. The idea is that they viewed anything that they came into contact, anything that came into their life or anything that God gave them was supposed to be used in the service of God. That's what it means that it became holy. It doesn't mean... Fair, fair. Right, so, so when they picked something up, meaning they were... Don't, they, ever, their goal was to use it in the service of God. So that's, it didn't mean that they would, you know, kick a rock down the road and all of a sudden the rock would, you know, be glowing with, with divine light. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we tend to view these things as like much more, much more unfathomable than they may be. I think it just... It, it's... It's more just a, a, a certain level of understanding more than a, a heebie-jeebie type yeah. of thing. Yeah, I agree. Like, I'm not, I, I'm just saying I don't like, this isn't like a, like what most people by now, by today's definitions would consider credible source. But I, I, I trust him. His, his memory is impeccable. Um, fine. Now, let's go on to the next period of history. David, would you like to take it away? Sure. So we're going to go from Revelation, right. the giving of the Torah at Sinai, until the first monarchy, that'll be approximately 1312 BCE, until the late 11th or early 10th century BCE. Um, in the broader world, a lot of totems were worn as necklaces, and they were the proverbial charms to ward off evil spirits and the like. There actually wasn't that much. I didn't write this down, so he, he, he couldn't have known this. But there wasn't that much like advancement in amulets from what I've seen during this time period. And so it was just—it's very brief. It was just like this is when totems were worn and charms and amulets, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, there's something we're going to be referencing a few times. It's, it's known as tractate tefillin. It's a minor tractate in in the Talmud, and it's really it, 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 there's nothing new in it. It just compiles. Uh, you know, rel- what's the word? Um, relevant. Okay. <laughs> it compiles relevant statement. You know, uh, Talmudic statements about filling, um, and it seems to be the the Gemara in Shabbos ninety six a seems to be the only reference that suggests people wore tefillin as early as the time of King David. Makes the claim that King's David, King David's wife Michal, wore tefillin. There's been speculation that Rashi's daughters wore tefillin. Um, there hasn't been confirmation of that from a credible source. It's all, it's all anecdotal. I, I've looked at, I, I, I like, look again, like I told, like I told said in the beginning of the episode or beginning of the last episode, depending on how I edit this. It's uh, I, I'm very comfortable with sometimes saying the sages didn't have all the evidence. And like, 
it's fine to kind of move on. But I think the, uh, the evidence for Rashi's daughters is very anecdotal that they wore tefillin. I'm not saying that women shouldn't wear tefillin. Like, I, I, there's, you're going to see Maimonides who says... That, that, that's the good thing about finding out about David's wife, Michal, is that we no longer have to rely on anecdotal evidence, right? evidence of Rashi's daughters when we have, you know... Uh, and if you're a modern Jewish thinker, like whatever that means, like not really in the in the orthodox purview of mind, uh, in the orthodox purview, you'll say, well, the Talmud also made an anecdotal statement. Fine, like I understand, but to orthodox, the orthodox world, the Talmud is authoritative um, to a very high degree. So the Talmud is considered authoritative for this purpose, the purposes of this episode and our worldview. <laughs> All right. Um. So we also, there was something called the, the Silver Scrolls. The Ketav Hinom. It was a, a discovery, a monumental discovery of two small silver scrolls dating back to the 7th or 6th century BCE. And they bore a striking resemblance to the priestly blessing that we have in the Torah. And scholars suggest that this is perhaps the early iteration of the parchment placed in Tefillin. The most of this shows is that perhaps the text placed in Tefillin early on differed from our current ones. Now, the idea of the Tofa or Totafot mentioned in Exodus and Deuteronomy were taken in a different physical manifestation. Um, other scholars dismissed this as, as a bit of a leap, failing to see the correlation between the priestly blessings and the Tefillin. As we went through the verses, right, there's no correlation between the priestly blessing and Tefillin. It's never connected anywhere in the Torah. There's no reason to assume the assumption, I, I presume, was made because of their size. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. The, the, right, the size of the scrolls. That down. You're right. right. The scholars who do not find it that big a leap view it as an apotropaic function, that it was they would carry around these small scrolls with the priestly blessings as a, some kind of charm. Maybe like to ward off evil. Right, like that, when people put like a little mezuzah in their car. Right, like, you right, know, stuff like, like that. Uh, which is it. very bad. I mean, it doesn't like that. We're going to get, we're going to, the Rambam is going to talk about it. Maimonides has opinions. <laughs> yes. Uh, the first monarchy until the destruction of the second temple, uh, that would be 10th century BC until 1st century CE. Right. In ancient Rome, Emulet's broader bro- world. Right. The broader world. And, and really, we just, we don't know a lot about, uh, about the practices of apotropic lifestyles. That's a, that's a mouthful. It's definitely okay. Look, it's not that it could be there's a lot of research done on it. I couldn't find a lot about it, and I just also don't have the time to go through every single scholarly article. And from what I went through, it it's very little, very little that I found that was beyond what I'm gonna what you're gonna hear right now. So in ancient Rome, amulets were worn not for piety or healing, but rather to imbue the wearer with certain godly powers. That was how it was viewed. Some of them contained substances like sulfur to prevent evil or disease. So again, that's uh, so. What I mean, what what we mean by the by imbuing the wearer with certain powers is that different gemstones would represent different Roman deities, and you would wear the gemstone that corresponds to the deity as a sign of like, you know, this is uh, like I've been imbued with Jupiter's power. I've been imbued with this with this god's power. This and that. It, it, it kind of moved away from just fighting off disease to more of like a superhuman. Now it's like to give you extra strength. Uh, in, in the Israelite world, we have uh, the Talmud Shabbos 130a that in, in a, in a tonight text, Rabbi Shem ben Elazar says regarding the mitzvah of circumcision, any mitzvah for which the Jews risk their lives 
at the time of decrees of the wicked empire, such as the prohibition of, of, of idolatry and the myths of circumcision, that they would risk their lives to perform or not do, to not do idolatry and to circumcise their children, in, in merit of their, of, their sac, of their sacrifice, it's still steadfastly observed today. Mm-hmm. And any myths for which the Jews did not sacrifice, were not willing to risk their lives, for example, tefillin, that means that nowadays it's still more casually observed. They're not as careful at, in its fulfillment as they should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Shla explains, uh, because you might, it, it, it either suggests one of two things. It either suggests that at the time, at the time of the writing of the Talmud, there maybe not as many people, not as big of a percentage of Jews, of Jews who consider themselves affiliated uh, wear tefillin as today, in which most Jews who consider themselves affiliated do wear tefillin. Um, or, it, the, as the, the Shnei Lechot Bris explains that, you know, in, in relative to Shabbos and Yom Tov, which are the, right, the two other osios, which is the, the getting into a whole other discussion. I mean, it's really, it's a whole other thing. Okay, now we have uh, Philo. Josephus. You want me to take this one? Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> yeah, David, we talked before about how Philo is a bit, a bit confusing in this one. But, uh, okay, so like David said, the, the, this, this idea from the Talmud, the, from the Talmud in um, Tractate Shabbat 130a, it's the identification with tefillin and, you know, all this, uh, how, how well it was observed. It's, uh, it's definitely seems to be weaker in whatever sense than, uh, than other than other mitzvot commandments or practices that the Jews are ready to give up their life for. So Philo, he views, um, it, it's questionable whether he views it as metaphorical or physical. And Josephus definitely views it as a physical manifest, uh, as a physical uh, practice. And Philo, it's unclear. But I, I don't think that there's any, uh, <clears throat> there's any, there's any reason if you know Philo's vernacular to kind of suggest that he thought it was purely metaphorical. He talks about a lot of physical things as metaphorical. I, I don't think it's that hard to, that's how that, that big of a leap to say he viewed them as physical also, but he was giving an allegorical interpretation. It's also much easier to believe someone who, I mean, Josephus believed they were physical because he saw people wearing them. I mean, and he lived around the time of the second temple. He, he had seen the sages. Right. He's seen people wearing them. If he hadn't, he wouldn't suggest they were physical things. Right. Josephus wasn't the type to, you know, kind of rely on the, uh, yeah. on the sages. He wasn't, he wasn't, he's not, he's not giving exegesis here. He, <laughs> he's reporting what he believes to be fact. Right. And the Philo is uh, speculating to some degree. Right. So Philo, uh, basically, do you think it's worth it to read Philo like here? The whole, that's why I underlined some parts. We, I think, just read what yeah, the, okay, it so. just goes on and on and on. So Philo says, the law says it is proper to lay up justice in one's heart and to fasten it as a sign upon one's head and as frontlets before one's eyes, figuratively intimating by the former that by the former expression that one ought to commit the pers- the precepts of justice not to one's ears, which are not trustworthy. There is no credit due to the ears. And by the second expression, there, and dot, 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 and by the second expression, that it is necessary not only to form proper conceptions of what is right, but also to do what one has decided upon without delay. For the hand is the symbol of actions, to which Moses here commands the people to attach and fasten justice, uh, saying that it shall be a sign of what indeed he has not expressly stated, because it is not a sign as I conceive of one particular thing, but of many, and I may also say of everything with which the life of man is concerned. 
ah, so this is the juicy stuff that I wrote before that I deleted because David didn't understand it. I forgot until I reread this just now. I think so, I've just understood it, what he means. Yeah. I mean, it's the Abarbanel. It's look, keep reading it. It's filling, you know, because there's a lot you can learn from it, right? Is that what you that, that That's definitely part of it. I, I, I don't have a Kiddush. I just mean, I just didn't understand all he was trying to say. I think there's a way to condense this in a way that, that doesn't sound so highfalu- highfalutin. <laughs> Okay, um, how would you non-highfalutin this? I would say... Unhighfalutin this. We're simply saying, uh, just simply that we wear the tefillin on our head to get, have the right ideas, but having the right ideas are not enough. So we also put it on our arm so that we... Having the right ideas translates into performing them in actions. And what actions would you say those are? He views it as kind of an ambiguous thing, just do justice. Like, you know, do truth and justice. Charity and justice. Exactly. So he doesn't view it as, as, as a specific, uh, as a specific uh, instruction, rather just like a reminder to be a good boy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or in his times, even a good girl, because in his times there was no approach. Okay, anyways, <laughs> I had to throw my two cents in there, you know me. Um, the translation is taken from the works of Philo by C.B. Young, Hendrickson Publishers in 1993, pages 629 to 30. You'll see it in the sources. And you know what? I'm just going to write in the sources because I, I don't want to keep saying where the sources are. It's going to be so long. Okay. Um, You're going to have trouble reading that. Okay. So let's just say Josephus. Josephus says they, they are to bear on their forehead, talking about, talking about the Israelites and what they have to do based on what Moses commanded. They are to bear on their forehead and their arm whose, uh, those wonders which declare the power of God and his good will towards them that God's readiness to bless them may appear everywhere conspicuous about them. Meaning that these, the, the, the direction towards the film was given in the context of our exodus from Egypt. And so they're like a constant reminder, not just to be a good boy, like Philo said, but a reminder of God's hand in our history, you know, like of God's uh, performing miracles for us. Because the, the exodus from Egypt is really when the Jewish nation really became formed as a people and that we have to be constantly reminded of our origins and where we came from and what our original, I mean, our goals haven't changed since we left Egypt. We just have to be reminded of what those are. Uh, just to make sure we don't get it confused, get it twisted. Uh, there's no room to view tefillin as, uh, as an amulet or some kind of uh, charm or, or I might even attempt to say that word again. So the Rambam, the Maimonides and the Laws of Idolatry, uh, chapter 11, halacha 13, says one who puts tefillin on a child to induce it to sleep are not only included in the category of sorcerers, which is a prohibition, but also among the deniers of the Torah. For they use the Torah to heal their bodies, but the Torah is only for healing the soul. Again, and this, by the way, goes back to our, interestingly enough, this goes back to our previous episode, the Torah is not for uh, medicinal purposes, right? Like, Correct. So, yeah. Um, but also, the, this Rambam, Maimonides is not making this up. He actually gets this from a Gemara that I do not remember where. But the Gemara is very explicit that if you put tefillin on somebody, you know, in an attempt to heal them, uh, I think there's like even in a, no, you know what, I'm not going to go there because I don't know if that's true. But it, it equates them to sorcerers also. Like, you know, they say this is not, the, the people who do this are condemned. There's no reason for this. Correct. Um, now we're going to go from the second temple destruction until uh, tw- the tw- 21st century, which is the first century common era until now. 
the broader world. Um, you might be thinking like amulets aren't a big thing now, and you'd be, you'd be right if you're a, if you're Western and if you're in America, um, but you'd be surprised. Uh, so now let's let's talk about the broader world. Christianity um, had the Christ on a cross figure actually until virtually since virtually virtually the origins of Christianity. It's it's very it, as natal as Christianity was in the first century. This uh, they they they. They brought the necklace with the with Christ on a cross right with them, so that was that was there since the beginning. It wasn't like a like an addition later on, like this nice little caveat. It, it was there since pretty much the beginning. Um, Islam banned amulets as paganism. Um, those of you who are familiar with Maimonides might realize that uh, what's it called, Maimonides, uh, and his very 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 hard focus on Islam was. This is probably one place he agreed with Islamists on. Uh, with Islamic philosophy on that you amulets or paganism. If you view them as, well, yeah, they're paganism. Uh, okay. So now you got China and Japan, China, um, uh, Taoists in China use parchments inscribed with specific Chinese calligraphy to ward off evil spirits. And uh, the parchments are called Fulu. I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm just, I'm sorry if I butchered that to any Chinese people who may be listening. Um, but Japan also has a similar, a similar parchment to the, to the Taoist in China, but it's called Ofuda. There are obviously nuanced differences between the two, but that is not the focus of this episode. Now, this is where it gets interesting, Thailand. So Thailand, if you remember a couple of podcast episodes ago, we talked about animism. Animism is the belief that every physical thing has a spiritual counterpart, even rocks. So Thailand actually has the greatest variety of amulets because anything can be an amulet in Thailand, basically. Um you know, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of shops that sell amulets and amulets can be made from everything, anything, you know, like, like this is, this might be like what you see in movies and TV shows, like a little bear charm, like a little wolf charm, like, you know, the bear symbolizes, uh, uh, I don't know, like, adver- ad- uh, like uh, the growl of the bear symbolizes the, the passion of the, of the person. In his- okay, anyways, now the Israelite world is very difficult. There's a whole book written by Yehuda Benjamin Cohn, or I don't know how to, yeah, Yehuda B. Cohn, I think. It's called Tangled Up in Text, Tefillin and the Ancient World. Brown University uh, is published by Brown University in 2008. Uh, an unbelievably detailed text, which is written by somebody who clearly has familiarity with the text of the sages. But uh, I find that he falls into the trap that I think a lot of people fall into, is that if the, I think people have a hard time kind of saying that the, you know, the sages' words can correlate to science nowadays in any way. And they kind of view science as like disproving the sages or disproving religion always. And like, you know, there's no like real, like real, this, uh, there's no difference between science and disproving religion because, okay. And I'll explain why I'm saying this. Um, he brings in a lot of researchers and a lot of historians. It's a very well-written work, but from what I've seen, the, it's, it's all speculation and all based, based on evidence that we have now. And it, it can be easily be updated in the future. Like there's whatever. Um, so these writers claim that tefillin were instigated by the Pharisees, um, meaning the, 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 sages of the, the sages at the time of the Talmud. Um, and they also suggest that the origin of tefillin was apotropaic in nature, was amulitic in nature. It seems to be the view of most historians that I've seen him mention. I could be, I could be misreading things. It's, it's very possible. I'm not going to claim that I understand things very well when I read them. I, I really don't. But um, I think that Unless I completely misread the like misread the word cat as dog, then I'm just I, I don't know how I could get a different idea of this. But basically, the 
they say that the sages began the tradition of of uh, of tefillin, but the tefillin's origins were and you, uh, were healing in nature. But the sages clearly clearly admonish people who view the tefillin as amulets. So I don't know why I don't know why this whole like uh, this whole conflict exists. Like I don't, it's unnecessary. And look, by the way, if you happen to read this book and you find a very strong case for the fact that the Pharisees created tefillin, um, I would suggest thinking about it like this. Even if it's true that the Pharisees created the, the modern day interpretation of tefillin, even if that's true and you want to back it up with the Rashbam that we saw, you shouldn't take it as like the rabbis are making things up. You should take it as the rabbis saw there was going to be a decline in an entire nation, like, you know, and their unity would be lost and they'd be lost to the world. And they saw a lot of beauty in something. And so they found something that would work to help the people, you know, maintain their identity. I, I don't think, I think that's a very beautiful thing, but you don't even have to make that leap. Like, you know, I was tempted to make that leap, but I just, I did not find the evidence at all convincing. The evidence is based on Qumran scrolls. Um, the majority of which have been already pretty much declared by the, by other historians that they were probably part of a geniza, which is which is in the Jewish culture. The geniza is a is essentially a a, a bear, explain it though because well, geniza I, literally means treasury. Mm-hmm. But um, when we have uh, certain objects like Torah scrolls, something like that, are imbued with a certain sanctity. So you, you when you need to when you no longer have use for something like that, for example. Uh, let's say it becomes frayed and old and it's just no longer viable, you can't just throw it out. You can either bury it or you can put it in, in a gnizo, which is basically just long-term storage in, 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 in you know, respectable yeah, conditions. Exactly. So, you know, and they say like, oh, but you see that tefillin was really started at around this time, but the most authorities hold, that was probably just a, just a treasury for miswritten tefillin. So like, the reason they view it as the instigation of tefillin is because it's the earliest copies they could find. And they say, oh, the tefillin was written with different text back in the time. So you see that it's, uh, there was different text in the Torah, perhaps. And it's just, it's hard to say that because we've had instances where like, even nowadays where people miswrite something in the Torah and we put it in a Geniza, like it's, it's a practice we've had for the longest time. So I, I don't know. I haven't found anything convincing. Okay. Anyways, the Talmud, let's talk about the Talmud. The Talmud in Brachot 23a or b. Actually, I'm going to give this to David because he understood this Talmud much better than oh. me. Yeah, so Rav Yochanan was uh, with a group of people and he needed to take a bathroom break. And um, if he was holding a, a, a Gothic book, he would give it to someone else and say, hold this for me while I go to the bathroom. I don't want to take this into the bathroom with me. But when he was carrying his tefillin, he said to himself, Let, I'll take them in with me to the bathroom because the rabbi is permitted bringing the tefillin into the bathroom, lest someone steal them or they be damaged by mice or other animals. So he said, once they've been given permission for me to carry them into the bathroom, they will protect me as well. And it's very strange. It's hard to understand in the context that we know that... You're not supposed you, to use yeah, tefillin as... Tefillin is, 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 if you do, you, you are considered, at least according to Maimonides, a denier of the Torah. So certainly Rabbi Yochanan wouldn't view tefillin... Uh, as something that was designed to protect you from harm. But at the same time, it seems that he did use them in that way to some degree. So um, I don't have a full understanding. Don't the commentaries say that they meant that you can protect the tefillin from being stolen? That is one commentary that he... It's still hard to say that, though. It's hard to say that because... It's not the way Rashi explains it. Right, because why would he not just give it to his students then if that was the case, right? Because they took other things from him. So the best answer I, I have to this is probably that 
is that it, if you are going to view it in that sense, it can't be the way you view it primarily, meaning it's a byproduct of its sanctity that it will also protect you, but that's not why we're using it. Now, I, that's that's not, a good interpretation. Yeah, but it's not the best, and it's not entirely satisfactory to me. Maybe one day I'll get a better answer. Right. Okay. Oh, this is interesting. You want to read this whole thing? You, this is a whole want, idea. You, if you want to, yeah. Yeah, why not? Like, you know. Okay, so there's a medrash. We'll just skip along Maimonides after. Right, in, yeah. Medrashin in Bamid Baraba 12.3 says, the Pasuk says, Yipo mitzancha elef, a thousand will fall from your side, uruvava miminecha, and 10,000 from your right side. Rav Yishak says that the hand, the, 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 the left hand, which has rulership over one mitzvah, meaning the mitzvah tefillin, it says, Yipo mitzancha elef, from your side will fall a thousand. Because your hand... One side of you has a thousand angels to guard it. But the right side, the right hand, which you perform many mitzvahs with, that, that it says, Uruvava miminecha, and 10,000 from your right side. Uruvava shal malachem nimsarmla, you have many malachem. There's an idea, in, 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 an idea that when you do deeds, whether good or bad, it creates a spiritual force, and that force is either a help or a hindrance to you based on you know, the quality of the deed. And he's suggesting here that um, the right hand, which performs many mitzvahs, therefore has more spiritual energy uh, assisting it. And the left side has less because we do, don't do as many mitzvahs with it. So the idea is, I, I suppose that there's, there's, this is something that was alluded to in Abraham's brismila, right? Abraham's circumcision. Right, that, that there's... The, the different mitzvahs correspond to different parts of the body. There's 600 and, and 248 uh, positive commandments and 248 limbs and 365 negative commandments and 365. I don't know if that line, uh, how the numbers work out, but the idea is that different mitzvahs are designed to perfect and, and change different parts of us. If, if only we understand how that works, the, we have to just do the best we can in understanding what the mitzvah does for us. I mean, why, why we're doing, why God wanted us to do it. Mm-hmm. And God, why, God want, why God wants us to do it. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, this? Yeah. Okay. That's fine. So we said earlier that the Talmud in, in Shabbos or in Erevin, uh, records that Shaul's daughter, Saul's daughter, Michal, or King David's wife, as you may know her. Right, mm-hmm. all right. Uh, that she would wear tefillin. There are isolated inst- instances of women wearing tefillin in an Orthodox context throughout history. The, that, the law today is that technically women are permitted to wear tefillin. It's just we're very careful about which women we have to do that, but we need to be sure of purity of intention. Because look, 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 uh, there's a famous idea that men have many commandments because if, if we didn't, men would just be like, messing up the world. Like, like, you know, like, the men have many desires and, you know, like a complicated idea, not to get too political, but, and myths, commandments really are very sanctified and it's unfortunate that they had to become ritualistic. But the, the idea is that the commandments aren't something that like, you know, we're not like trying to exclude anybody from commandments. They're just something, that, a lot of times there's something to keep us busy that we can build up a foundation of sanctity from. So, the whole idea of excluding women was, as one commentary puts it, to exclude from pride, you know, from arrogance, not pride, arrogance. 
It's, Let me call it in, in the calls Yehora, where you, I guess you would describe it as uh, fake piety. Yes. Uh, for example, like the, the story goes where a, a woman came to, I don't know, whatever rabbi, and said that she had worn a talus and it made her, it really helped her connect in her davening. And it really, and she wanted to know if she could wear a talus. And the rabbi said yes, and he gave her a talus. And um, she came back after two weeks and he asked her how it was going with the talus. She said, great, my prayers are so much better. And the rabbi revealed, not to her, he let her keep going with it, but revealed that there were no fringes on the talus. It was just a shawl. Uh-huh. Meaning she felt like that was something. In reality, it was uh, more of her imagination. Yeah. Um, so we don't want, the idea is that people, if we want someone to, to deviate from what's nor- the normal way of doing things, then there has to be, it has to be, uh, we have to be sure that it's for the right reason. Another, just a practical reason is that well, an aspect of this film is that we're very careful. Like it's, it's, my father told this to me the first day I put on the film and I, he said, don't laugh. And I laughed anyway, because I was 12 uh, or almost 13. He said, don't fart with your film on. And I laughed, uh, but I didn't fart with my film on. This idea that it's film that, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's protecting the, the sanctity that we have to be careful about our bodies. If we have to go to the bathroom, then we must take them off. It's like that time of day, like where just, just, just leave that time for holiness, you know, right. like don't. Uh, right. And, and, um, s- servants like, uh, Tabi, the servant of Rabbi Gamliel, not Jewish, by the way, he would put on tefillin. He tab- wasn't Jewish? No, 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 no. We had this discussion. He was Jewish. You're thinking of a different one. Tabi was Jewish? No, me? I don't, I'm not even sure. And, oh, wait, no, 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 you're right. Cause they mourn for him. You're not supposed to mourn for an Avadi, a Vikinani. You're right. You're right. He was, he was yeah, so, so uh, pretty sure a non-Jewish slave of Rabbi Gamaliel, he would put on film. He had a very interesting, he was a very interesting servant. Um, Rabbi, Rabbi Gamaliel mourned very much for him after he passed away, which is not uh, in accordance with the, the typical ruling. Um, he also would sleep in the sukkah. And uh, he was known to be... In the little hut that you might have noticed Jews put up on, around the... Fall. October. Yeah, around yeah. that time. And um, Raghulil called him kosher. He was different than, than, other, than other servants. He was kosher. Um, we don't know what that means either. That's why yeah, we're not trying to say yeah, It means like uh, legit, I guess, is the best word. He was wholehearted. Means. Yeah. He was sincere. Um, the singular word for... Right, tefillin is just the plural word, kind of. The singular tefillin is kind is, of it's, tf- it's yeah, yeah. yeah. The difference is that the grammatically it's it's in the keva, so it should be tefillot. Right, fine, fine. So tefillin is like one of the boxes is called one tefillah, and another box and another box and they have tefillin. The, the difference is that prayers, plural, are not tefillin but are tefillot. So this is more of a uh, Menachem and Suruk type of thing to deal with. Uh, a, yeah. An etymologist. Yeah. Yeah, it's an etymological thing. Rashi deals with them quite a bit. Yeah. Um, according to Maimonides, the Sadducees, which are a, a group of Jews who uh, took, uh, I guess they focused much more on the text, because but like that, they, they... They viewed the text as the, the end. End all, and there was no uh, commentary on the text. Right. So they, they literally put the, the tefillin on their hands, literally on their hands, and literally between their eyes, like on the bridge of their nose. This is what modern day thinkers uh, outside the Jewish world think Jews, Christians, and uh, Arabs see their, see their respective holy text as, you know, like simply, you know, so I, I can't speak for the Christian and Arab world, but, you know, we don't see our text in the mainstream Judaism as simply the text. We always see beyond face value, as I made a comment in the previous, in the previous, uh, 
uh, what's it called episode or this episode, depending on how I edit it again. Right. Always reading between the lines, looking for anomalies. Words are written in specific ways with extra letters, lacking letters. So we're always trying to find out what is the beyond the, the simple meaning. meaning. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What is the genuine meaning of this oh. verse? <laughs> Um, Self-plug. Yes. Uh, the sages referred to these people as heretics. Uh, some people called the outsiders the chitzonim. What, what, what do they do? They put the tefillin on their little hand, on their hands and on top of, like, by the, and between, their between their eyebrows. Okay, yeah. gotcha. So, uh, the outsiders, the chitzonim, whoever those may be, would put uh, gold wrapping around their tefillin. So, uh, that's actually interesting. Uh, and the, uh, the what does the Gimara say about those people? I didn't see it. Okay, so they, they're also, they, they, that wasn't considered proper, but it's interesting because uh, tefillin, you can view tefillin as an adornment, um, but it's not its main, that's not its main, like, people want to translate the word tefillin, by the way, as some kind of crown or some kind of, like, beautiful thing, but uh, it, the tefillin are not meant to be this adornment, like, you know, like a fashion sense or something like that, like, you know, they're not meant to be like a nice gold, gold strapped thing. It's not, it's not meant to be that, that's... Right. It's, we, again, it's all about sanctity. It's you know we're not trying to make a fashion statement. When we when we do say that we that the tefillin are our jewelry of the bride of the king, obviously we're uh, we're not talking about jewelry as in uh, something that looks nice. We're, it's, it's an allegorical, uh, a much deeper message that I'm really not going to get into. Yeah, um, Maimonides maintains that tefillin fall under the category of prayer that can be done at all times by anyone. So you can always put on tefillin. Uh, now you, we don't put tefillin on at night because we're very concerned that somebody might fall asleep in them, and we want to be careful about you know maintaining the sanctity and being aware of when you're wearing your tefillin. Right. So uh, Maimonides, you know, he lived in the. I keep I keep messing this up. Like he was saying 16th century. He was really much earlier. Just this thought was so advanced. I keep associating. Yeah, 12th, 12th or like 13th latest, but it was probably 12th. I keep associating with 16th century because I keep thinking he's so he was so advanced in his thinking. Uh, anyways. But it's an important caveat because, you know, a lot of uh, like uh, Judaism also had sacrifices as the original uh, form of prayer and worship. And Maimonides says tefillin and, t- and fringes and, you know, and uh, uh, something else that he mentions. And uh, no, mezuzah. T- mezuzah, right. These things were all, people can pray at any moment. The problem is it's very hard to get yourself that mindset. People who have practiced meditation know like you can't just snap, you can't just snap your fingers and you know, you can't just go into that cross-legged pose with your thumbs on your knees and like just get into that Buddhist state where you're just beyond all, beyond all uh, distraction. To fill in a mental, like constantly remind you that you're, you're trying to be in that state. Like you'll get distracted. Like we'll all get distracted. This is just how we are. But according to Maimonides, this is like the beauty of to fill in fringes that, when you look at them, you're supposed to be reminded, like, hey, I'm supposed to be doing something sa- sacred now, like, you know, just this, uh, this hour. Yeah, it definitely ties into this, this statement that the Rama makes, right? All the time that it says that the whole time a person is wearing tefillin on their head and on their arm, he becomes humble and God-fearing. He's not drawn into frivolity and idle talk. He does not dwell on evil thoughts. He occupies his mind with thoughts of truth and righteousness. It has a, it's meant to have a certain tangible effect in you that we try not to speak, uh, you know, things that are not important to the service of God while we're wearing our film. We're trying to focus only on that. Exactly. Um, Maimonides maintains that in the times of the sages, it was permitted to write scrolls of film in Greek uh, because of certain circumstances. Can, but not- can, we just, can we just like explain how crazy that is? 
I understand yeah. the circumstances was death otherwise, but yeah. there is really very little. Uh, he yeah, he doesn't allude to that quite hardly. You know what I mean? He doesn't allude to that quite clearly. But uh, still, it, the fact certainly that, strange. Yeah. So okay, go on. So the typically has to be written in Ksava Shuris, the the square version of of Hebrew. Right. Yeah. As most of you know who are familiar with history, there was an original Akkadian script, which is. Very, it it looks more like the like the like an ancient more primitive. Uh, yeah, it looks much more primitive. Like just to be straight about it, but the the Hebrew script that we have nowadays was not the script that it was originally written in. The I believe the sages overruled that script, and, and they because it was more familiar to write in the right. in the in the square script for everybody. So they just it was the Babylonian script also. So they just said go with that. Yeah, it was known as uh, Ksav Ivri. Because yeah. that was the Jews were known as uh, the Ivries because the Ivries that passed we, over the Mesopotamian. Right, exactly. You yeah. say the Mesopotamian. What's the name of the Mesopotamia? Well, the river, Euphrates. Oh, okay, the Euphrates River. So, and Ksava Shuris is if you would open a Torah scroll, you'd see the the typical people what people look see as uh, the Hebrew script. Right. Um, okay. Rav Karo explains that we put on. Uh, our tefillin after we put on our talit and because well actually no the reason is not because of the chiristanity it's because of tadashim and tam no well he says it's be- yeah he, he said that we the 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 tefillin has a higher sanctity than that of the prayer shawl with the with the fringes on it uh the lababachira sakara was the 16th century codifier of jewish law author of the shulchan Aruch. yes and uh, he when he wrote something it was very much it was always from the from sages from before him, so we we know that he. I don't think I've seen it anywhere clearly written that the film that the film has a high level of sanctity. I think it was just implied always because God's name is written in them. Yeah, it's simple. It's really simple as that. If you, yeah, you don't, if you drop your tzitzis on the floor, you don't have to like you yeah, know you pick them up. Right, and exactly. You drop a tone on the floor. It's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it's much much more intense. Uh, Rav Menachem Mendel Schneerson, also known as the Lubavitcher Rebbe. In 1967, spearheaded the movement to reinvigorate the observance of film throughout the world. If you go anywhere, uh, much in, anywhere, the world, anywhere yeah, in the world, it's quite incredible. And you that, see the proverbial Jew with the hat and the beard, and they they might ask you if they approach you if you put on tefillin today, because this has become very strong in Chabad. And you have to give them credit for that, because that is something that Talmud said was a very weak thing for Jews. And even if Menachem Mendel Schneerson uh, started the movement, you have to realize that that means that people were still not so... Stark and uh, well, not so stark means like observant, I guess, in tefillin. And um, you got to give him credit because right now tefillin is uh, definitely in the Jewish world bopping. Oh my god, I hate that I said that. Yeah. Anyway. No matter what anybody can say about whatever gripes people may may not have a chabad, there's no dispute that Rabbi Nachman was a, a tzaddik beyond measure, righteous, righteous man. Yes, and uh, the this, care that he had for people was unbelievable. Oh, unbelievable. This is all you. Okay, so I was very excited for this part, and I think that uh, you showed this to me when you wrote it a few years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I I was introduced to an idea that I did not understand the depth of back when I was uh, in in Israel abroad. It's such a beautiful idea. So we know everybody like asks like, okay, so like if you're an Orthodox Jew and you hear about tefillin and you learn where the where they come from, the word the verses say that you should say that they should go on your hand. They should be as straps on your hand. Uh, sorry, as a sign on your hand and as a remembrance between your eyes. But we put our tefillin on the forehead and on our arms, not our hand and our and between our eyes. 
that was the that was the uh, that was the, the Sadducees the, did right the custom of the Sadducees the custom of the Sadducees. So what, what's going on, right? And so everybody says, oh, the sages do. You put it on. You actually put it on your head in the place that, like, you know, if you measure up between your eyes, it's standing on the on the top of your head, like in the front, and like right on top of your forehead, basically. And the knot of the tefillin is in your back, is in the back of your head, uh, at the place where like uh, your neck meets your your like meets your face. I guess it meets the back of your face, um, if that's correct. The small indentation. Um, like above the, the the last knot in the spine, right? right exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and basically, this is uh, so it's very interesting. You, you're gonna, I think, everybody here will really enjoy this. But there's the discovery of the this is the this is the, the cherry on top of the cake. The, there's a discovery of the left and right brains, the left and right brain hemispheres, right? And we know that the right brain controls the left part of the body, and the left brain controls the right side of the body. So. The straps of the tefillin, the head tefillin, this is a little bit less, uh, less incriminating, than, uh, less uh, cool than the next part, but you'll see. The, the, the straps of the tefillin go from right to left and left to right. And, you know, and the, uh, it's just cool because like the right brain controls the left hemisphere and the left brain controls the right, left, the right hemisphere. So what does that have to do with tefillin in between your eyes? Good question. Now, we, anybody who's familiar with the, the brain knows that there are different lobes of the brain, right? There's the occipital, the frontal, the uh, the prefrontal. The, no, that's the cortex. Hippocampus. Yeah, exactly. There's different areas of the brain. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the frontal lobes, which have recently been discovered, and there's been research. Basically, when you see, you don't see like a camera. Like we think we see as like a camera sees. You know, just sees what's in front of it, and like that's it. But the truth is, it's been observed that the occipital lobes of the brain, which is where the forehead is, which is where the tefillin rests, it's, it actually constructs the very world that you see. Like, it doesn't just see the image. It constructs it actively. Like, it puts everything together for you. It's very complicated, and it's very beautiful. And where the knot of the tefillin is, in the back, where the indent is, like David said, that is the occipital lobe. The occipital lobe is pro- responsible for reversing the image, because really, you see everything reversed. Is, is responsible for reversing and processing these images so that you can actually make sense of them, right? It's, it's really cool. Like, you know, this is really, this is literally, figuratively, literally between your eyes. It's, it's really beautiful. And, um, and this is a powerful, it's a powerful thing to keep in mind. Maimonides' words that we mentioned before have a more powerful connection than previously thought. He claimed that the sanctity of tefillin is a higher degree of sanctity. As long as the tefillin are on a man's head and arm, he is humble and God-fearing. He is not drawn into frivolity and idle talk, and he does not dwell on evil thoughts, but occupies his mind with thoughts of truth and righteousness. And if you understand this idea, it's that you don't see with your eyes don't like just people like, you know, like why do people, why do stores put things on the window silver? Because they want people to buy, like you see and you want to buy, right? But the tefillin is an idea that like, you don't see with your eyes, you have to see with your brain. You know, you have to see with your mind. Right? Like you have to be rational about things. And uh, you have to know where to you have to know where to where to place your eye where to place your eyes. That's like a nice little thing about tefillin of the head. And yeah, well, I, think I think the idea of, of your your Im, the, if we're talking about creating images, right? The, the, these parts of the brain are designed for creating the images that you see. I think easily we could say that you know our image of the world, the way our worldview, the way we go up about life, seeing things, we have to see things through that godly prism. That's why we have to have that, that's filling on those spots to let you know that 
you know, a little reminder. That's how we, that's how we, we look at reality. The, through the, the, our images, we, we should perceive things in a godly way. Everything we do is in a godly way, including how we perceive things. If anybody's ever heard Anim Zmiro, the, the song that they sing on Shabbos sometimes, uh, it says, that Hashem showed the knot of his proverbial tefillin to Moshe, the picture of God in front of his eyes. So we see there's a little bit of the connection there to maybe to Debrechai's idea about the tefillin and uh, image processing. It's not my idea. I was introduced to this by a rabbi in Asia Torah, and uh, I haven't asked him for permission, so I'm not going to ask, and we're not going to say his name, but uh, if uh, I'm going to contact him, hopefully, and whatever, we'll see. But um, it, this, this idea is open knowledge, so he, does, he, he will not prevent me from, I know him, he will not prevent me from spreading. So you should it. say his name. He would want you to say his name. It's not that, not that simple. All right. uh, fine, but this, by the way, you, like, you might think this is a recent development, but the idea that the mind was involved in sight was around as early as like the, the 12th century. But just to give you an idea, Rabbeinu Bachya, who we mentioned before, Bachya ben Asher ibn Halawa, the, the words between your eyes are not to be taken literally, but they mean that they are to be placed on the forehead opposite the seat of the brain. This was a, this was a, a scholar of the 12th century or the 11th century. It's, it's unbelievable that like, you know, this, these ideas were around and that, you know, Orthodox thinkers weren't opposed to them. Oh, take that. Uh, but, but now what about the arm to fill in, right? The arm to fill in are also very cool. Um, I always thought this was like, okay, like this is whatever, like you know, classic Jews trying to put their medical research into weird things that are like somehow correlate. Cherry picking. Exactly. Cherry picking their med- medical research. But I actually read the paper and I had a friend of mine, the guest on the podcast from last week, Binyamin Sanchayev, um, about the Jews in medicine. Um, and he explained the article to me and it's really quite fascinating. The fill-in on the arm has been shown in a very, in a very like a small study, but still like, you know, a, a, not, a, not a false study by any means. The tefillin on the arm are found to condition the heart to have a higher blood flow and it prevents cardiovascular problems. It actually like kind of teaches the heart to accept more blood to flow through it. And it's very cool. Like it prevents strokes and that was just a little cool thing. And this can probably connect to the idea that David said previously based on the uh, schla about the not spilling the blood, right? Like not a, mm. so you want to, you want to expand on that? Uh, I, I think I need time to work on that one. But yeah, we said that it, the, the little piece we mentioned about that it's on our head to prevent arrogance and upon our arm to prevent murder, meaning to perfect our deeds and our thoughts. Um, so how am I going to tie that together? I really so, no so not, okay, fine. So like Shri Hasdam, not spilling the blood uh, with the tefillin on the arm, it's, it's you're not spilling blood. You're literally creating it. To, you're using it in in service of your heart, in service of your like you know, in service of your health. Mm. And uh, it it kind of like when blood flows to your heart more like, when it has an easier time getting in, and your heart's not fighting to get blood in, you can be in a state of relaxation. You know, and like that's that's important to meditate and to yeah. be in a state of sanctity. Only when you're in the in that state of, of of openness and ability to take in is that that's the only the time we can truly grow and learn is when we're open to hearing new ideas exactly all right we did it yeah wow the whole thing how long was that hour and a half around okay not bad not bad